Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We have authors flying in from all over the world today. It's amazing. Well, Antonia, where are you from? Um, Well, I'm from Sydney, which is where I came from this morning, but I'm living in San Francisco at the moment. And Eka, where are you from? I am from Jakarta, Indonesia. Ah, so let's get cracking. Now, Indonesia is one of our closest neighbours, but what do we know about it? Can we learn anything about the people and the politics of Indonesia through fiction? Yes. (laughs) Eka Kunawaran, you've written such a fantastic book Mm -hmm. in Beauty is a Wound. Thank you. Now, first of all, the place you've set this book, Halimanda. Halimunda. Halimunda, where's that? Uh, This is just a fictional town in actually setting in West Java. Uh, Well, a, a mythical town. And in the middle of the book, there's three men who really run this town. One of them's Shitangcho. What does he do? Uh, he is actually uh, with a military background. Uh, I think I want to uh, create uh, a metaphor for Indonesian history. Um, so he's got the military background. What about Kliwon? Kliwon Sung is he is a communist. Yeah. Uh, actually, we know Indonesia has a tragic travel history about communism. And there's the third man, Mamun Gending. Where does he get his power from? Uh, before he 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 became a thug, he, he was actually a military too, but uh, he's a representative for um, a thug that um, after the killing of communism in communists in Indonesia, there's a um, murder of um, almost um, some. He's a thug. Thug. He's, thug. <laughs> he's just a thug. <laughs> he's just got all the, you know, the thugs organised. That's what he does. Okay, now what connects these three men? They're connected by actually uh, a family um, and historical. So, yeah, they, they really are stereotypes of actual people there. But in our story, they're all married to women who are three sisters. Yeah. So, who was their mother? Uh, Their mother is Devi Ayu, um, a legendary prostitute in Halimunda. (laughs) Absolutely. And the three daughters have all got different fathers. So, um, there's a fourth daughter. What did she look like? What she looks like? Uh, yeah. He's so hideous. Hideous. Like. hideous. Monstrous. <laughs> Monstrous. <laughs> you know, uh, ears like pot handles, mm-hmm. nose like an, an electric socket, yeah. <laughs> skin all black. She is an absolute monster in mm. comparison to her three older sisters who yeah. are just beautiful and her mother also beautiful. So the title of this book is Beauty is a wound. Yeah. Mm. Why? Uh, I think the 
the title is um, something represents um, my country, my history, my country story, my people. Um, such beautiful country with such <gasps> woman. <laughs> so it goes even further than the women. It's the country <laughs> as well. Uh, there's a quote from the book. Um, this is from the mother. There's no curse more terrible than to give birth to a pretty female in a world of men as nasty as dogs and heat. <laughs> well, Dewey Ayu prayed for an ugly baby and then willed herself to death 12 days later. I'd like to read the opening paragraph of your book, if I may. One afternoon, on a weekend in March, Dewey Ayu rose from her grave after being dead for 21 years. A shepherd boy, awakened from his nap under a frangipani tree, peed in his shorts and screamed, and his four sheep ran off haphazardly in between stones and wooden grave markers as if a tiger had been thrown into their midst. It all started with a noise coming from an old gravesite with an unmarked tombstone covered in knee-high grass. But everyone knew it was Dewey Ayu's grave. She had passed away at 52, rose again after being dead for 21 years, and from that point forward, nobody knew exactly how to calculate her age. Now, this is what I think is wonderful about this book. It's just all of this ghosty stuff. It's accepted. You know, nobody was terrified of her. They just mm. didn't know how to count, calculate her age. It <laughs> was great. Um, uh, how much do ghosts p- play a part in Indonesian culture? Very much. Uh, I think Indonesia is a very rich ghost culture. Uh, ghost as a ghost and ghost as a metaphorical, of course. Um, everybody believes in ghosts in there. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, one wonders after reading this book if pure love is just as fantastic mm. as goats. What do you think? Pure love? Can you yeah. have it? Yes, I, I think... Uh, it's true um, that fear love um, can even can save that ghost. So in our story, we have Romeo and Juliet in, in the mm. English stories. Are there really mountains in Indonesia named after lovers? Uh, actually, Indonesia is influenced by other culture, like um, from Ramayana, Mahabharata, there is... Uh, there is um, Laila Majnun from Persia is um, adopted by Indonesian too. Uh-huh. Well, these, these two lovers, uh, Ma Gadek and Ma Yang, do have mountains named after them. And it's... Uh, could it be possible that an evil spirit separated from his one true love decides to ruin everybody's else's love? Well, look, you mentioned, uh, Ika, that this book was based on truth and with Dewey Ayu's life story, it really does include so many pertinent happenings Mm. that happen within Indonesia. Her parents were brother and sister, although her mother was from a concubine. She had strong feelings that a prostitute had more advantages than a concubine. 
she, a quote from the book, she had had 172 men. The oldest one was 90 years old. The youngest one was 12. It was one week after his circumcision. I remember them all well, she says. How did or why did Dewey A.U. become a prostitute? Uh, she became a prostitute uh, first time because... Uh, Japanese occupation wants all girls from from prison to be a uh, entertainment girl, and then I think Devi Ayu um, talk about talk about prostitute as a philosophical attitude toward uh, men toward war. Yeah. These young girls were picked out from the prison of war camp and they thought they were volunteering for soldiers who were sick. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, and, you know, she was very forthright in what she actually told her own daughters. She says, quote from the book, I was forced into prostitution due to circumstance, just like circumstance makes somebody a prophet or a king. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, we talked about... Um, Mammon Gendeng, he was the uh, bandit thief. Right. He came to Halimunda following a mythical story. What was that story about? Uh, it's a story about uh, Ranganis. The, uh, Ranganis is uh, a princess um, who married a, a dog. Actually, uh, this is a, a folklore in, Jap- in West Java about a girl who... Mm, want to marry someone uh, someone who he saw first when he opened a window but mm, when he found it he opened he opened the door and he, he saw a dog so mm, he he married so this this princess was just so beautiful mm. that um, she caused so many people to die, yeah. you know, because they fought over her, and that's why she thought, no, no, I don't know, just marry the first thing I see when yeah. I open up the window, and it was a dog. <laughs> very, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, what this mother did, uh, Dewey. Um, a, she was as she had three daughters. She married them, or well, some were chosen. First of all, she wanted to marry her youngest daughter to um, this Mamun Gendeng mm. that um, came looking for a beautiful woman. But he had to wait five years until she grew up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she was twelve when uh, she got married to him. Shodankcho, now he was the military man. He knew he had a gift for warfare and extraordinary business instinct, Mm. as he said. There's no difference between war and business. Both must be conducted with extraordinary cunning. (laughs) That was a good quote, quote. Now he wanted to marry her oldest daughter, but she was in love with Cleon, the, the communist. So this soldier drugged and raped her. She married him but would never love him. Mm. And this was incredible. She wore iron undies. <laughs> so, uh, 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 one of those. Yeah, so he couldn't get in. <laughs> oh, very interesting. So it was a clear one who married the middle sister. Um, and it was... <laughs> 
uh, it just even Cleone's mother, sort of looking at her son, who was the communist, said, "His way of thinking could be surprising, if not borderline insane." Now, <laughs> the mother didn't want him to be a communist because he, he she thought that that communists were all gloomy and pensive, but. Um, then, once again, through this book, we, we have all the communists massacred, which actually did happen, didn't yeah. it? When was that? It's 90, in 1965. Well, it wasn't just Dewey Ayu's children, but her next generation who come into the story. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't believe how you got them all in there. But... Um, so this was a family epic over, oh, six generations really, wasn't it? Because we had um, Dewey Awa's parents coming home yeah. and picking up and understanding where the ghosts were coming from. You wrote this book 12 years ago. Yeah, I wrote the book 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Published 13 years ago. And it's taken, well, sort of 12 years and thanks to to text for actually yeah. publishing it here in Australia because I learned, you know, through it's a very readable book. It's a big book. It's nearly, it's it's uh, nearly five hundred pages, but through this incredible family epic, I picked up so much about Indonesia. Absolutely fantastic. The only thing that I it was translated by an American w woman. And the, the there were so many pregnancies, so many pregnancies, and so much sex in this. <laughs> that, but she often used the term being knocked up, <laughs> and it's it's kind of like not a term that we use all that often. But anyway, that's that's great. Look, I absolutely loved it. Uh, it great read. Um, Ika Kunawaran, you, you're going to be speaking at the Melbourne Writers Festival this weekend. Yes, um, tomorrow. Um. Tomorrow. And if people out there want a good read, Beauty is a Wound, a novel by Eka Kunawaran, published by text. Terima kasih. Oh, David showing Sama -sama. off his Indonesian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, basically, we're now going from myth to physics. Did you know, Jan, E equals MC squared? It's a well-known yeah. equation, but Einstein. in the novel Relativity, it takes on a whole new meaning because oh. E is Ethan, M is Mark, and C is Claire. And the author of this reinterpretation of the equation is Antonia Hay. So, Antonia, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, you've chosen to base this story against the backdrop of physics. Relativity is the title. The chapter headings uh, include velocity, acceleration, inertia. And yet, this is an emotional story. What's going on? Well, I guess because I was writing something that was about a family, um, which is sort of a very micro thing, I wanted to think about it and structure it around a scaffolding that was bigger and more macro. So there's nothing bigger than the universe. <laughs> Indeed. And there are references to the universe all the way through stars and such like that, that are, are going on there. The central development thread you've got going is Ethan. Uh, which is interesting because our introduction to him raises some fascinating questions about his nature. So if you'll allow me, I'm just going to read um, one of the initial encounters with Ethan. His mum studied his face, the hypnotised way people stared at paintings or sunsets. Ethan, sometimes I have no idea where you come from. Yeah, you do. I come from inside you. 
As usual, you're right, she said, rolling onto her stomach. Mum, want to know something crazy? Statistically, the probability that I exist is basically zero. Did you know you were born with two million eggs, but when you were 30, you'd lost 90% of them, and by the time you turn 40, you'll have only about 50,000 left, so the chance that I was born was 0.008%. I'm one in two million eggs, plus I'm one in 250 million sperm. That's approximately how many sperm are in each male ejaculation. Mum looked confused. How do you know all this? We're doing sex ed at school. Mr. Thompson even made us watch a, a video of a real birth. I saw an actual vagina and everything. Ethan paused. Mum, do you think they ever miss me? Who? The other eggs. My brothers and sisters inside your ovaries. So far, I'm the only one who successfully made it out. <laughs> um, now, there's an expectation, perhaps, that you're setting up here with Ethan. What sort of character is he? Well, he's someone who's very scientific, so he's only 12 years old, but he already knows so much about the universe and physics, quantum mechanics. So what do you expect the reader to think of where he is located in terms of that, the emotional and intellectual spectrum? Well, I guess intellectually he's well and truly ahead of his peers, but emotionally I would say he's he's on par with being a 12-year-old boy. On par with... Well, in, in some ways that sort of knowledge and that sort of uh, detail with numbers sort of brought to mind the notion of Asperger's. Yeah. And so the sort of... That's where I was heading in terms of my uh, view of Ethan, but all of a sudden you... Well, not all of a sudden, over the course of the novel you sort of play with that expectation of Ethan. So the, the central concern of the story is really what, who is Ethan, what he is and what influences him or how he came to be um, this uh, intellectual giant that he is because you go into neuroplasty. What's that? Oh, so neuroplasticity is the um, the brain's ability to change itself and fix itself. So I um, I became quite interested in neuroscience after reading Oliver Sacks' books. So um, there are many cases, especially in um, a man who mistook his wife for a hat, of people that have had you know interesting brain injuries, um, or kind of were born like that. So it's um, yeah. So they they just have these extraordinary splinter abilities. And then you go into things like synesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain? Yeah, that? so synesthesia is when there's cross activation in parts of the brain, um, which means that people who suffer from it can see colours and hear, you know, numbers and, and what can Ethan do, which is particularly unique? So what Ethan can do is he can see physics. So he can see sound waves and he can see particles. Is that actually possible? I've heard of synesthesia and uh, emotion as colour and things like that. Can you actually see physics, do you think? Uh, is there a...? Well, there are some cases. So there, there are cases of people who um, not so much see sound waves but can understand fractals and see things like that. Um, there's particularly like people who are savants, they can see things and understand things. Like there's there's one savant who can count pi up, I think up to 50, maybe 10,000 you know, numerals, which is crazy. <laughs> because you do go then into this area as well, the notion of an acquired savant. What's mm -hmm. that? So an acquired savant, somebody who wasn't born with their skills, but um, they came about them usually through an injury. So that then leads us into the 
shaken baby syndrome yeah, as I, well. Yeah, so that's that's a particular sort of brain injury that happens to infants um, when they they have abusive head trauma. So, but there is some argument then about if it's a, an actual. Uh, thing that because the argument comes up in the book. Um, yeah, it's it's quite a controversial diagnosis because um, you can't actually diagnose abuse because you aren't you aren't there to see it and you can only really infer it as the medical community and it's quite an unknown thing because there are no witnesses except the person who's been accused of it. Yes, because the baby can't yeah, speak for itself. Exactly. But this is all of these strands are in the in. Uh, in the novel, and we're sort of trying to work out how Ethan came to acquire the ability um, that he has. So that sort of becomes the central concern. Was that what you intended? Yeah, um, I mean, there's so much stuff that kind of came into the book while I was writing it. So I didn't start it with Ethan being a savant. Um, that actually was something that happened while I was halfway through, and I'm like, that's why this is happening. And <laughs> but, but in some ways, um, you sort of uh, speculate as to whether this is a true ability or uh, accidental or whether he has, in fact, a neurological disorder. So we never quite know. Yeah, I um, I did definitely want to, to, I don't know, get the reader confused about what was going on. And thinking about it. So that, that's why I say it's the central concern of the novel in terms of Ethan's development and, and the question that we sort of try and pursue. Because against this uh, sort of query about Ethan's skill and ability, we then have the backdrop of the relationships. Um, there's Claire, his mother, and... Mark, now what's going on there? So they they were married um, well before, before Ethan was born and then soon after Ethan was born they broke up so they haven't seen each other for a very long time and they're estranged. And the novel really begins when Mark, Ethan's estranged father, comes back into their lives quite suddenly. But also then this raises another concern in terms of Ethan now being at the age where he's perhaps looking for a father figure. Yeah, he's very curious about his father and because his mother Claire has told him very little about his father, he's extra curious. Curious. So, so but again, then you've got the counterpointing of that sort of intellectual development with the emotional development going on. Exactly. So it's kind of Newton's third law for every action there must be an equal and opposite reaction. Now, you're getting into all this physics and I'm just wondering, and, and there, there is, there's the medical side, so the, the acquired savant, synesthesia, neuroplasticity, so there's the medical side and all the physics. The research you must have done to, to get on top of all of this. I actually had so much fun doing the research. So... People often ask who Ethan is based on and because I have a son, people assume my son, but actually Ethan is a lot more like 12-year-old me. I was one of those kids who was very good at maths and I went to maths camp and I did like the Australian maths competitions and came in the top 0.1%. So um, all those sorts of pattern spotting and scientific thinking is kind of the way that my brain works. And I guess I have a bit of a mathematical interest in language as well, which is how I started writing. Right. But it, it does raise that question of, of the development of the brain, but the emotional quotient as well as the intellectual quotient. Yeah, that's going and, on. and I think that those things are often thought of separately and they're not necessarily separate at all. And it's, it's quite 
you know, interesting to try and combine them and see how they play off each other because they're very much in balance. It's like an equation. Yes. And, you know, you, but you're bringing up things like the Doppler effect, Planck's theorem, <laughs> quantum physics. Um, you, of course, the reader doesn't need to know these things, but it, it does raise some interesting questions um, about who we are and what we are. But you then uh, go on to other issues because uh, what's brought Mark back home? So his father is dying and he hasn't seen his father for eight years and he wants to come back and say goodbye. And you do raise this whole notion then of death, um, death and life and those sorts of concerns. Um, and you have Mark recounting, in fact, the death of his mother. And if um, I may again, the cancer spread quickly towards the end, metastasizing impatiently from cell to cell. In a matter of months, the colour of her skin changed, her eyes grew dull, clothes fell off her shoulders and hips. She was in and out of hospital, and Mark was in and out of waiting rooms until the treatment stopped working. The doctors let Eleanor come home to die. In those last few days, she was barely conscious, but Mark sat at the foot of her bed and spoke to her like nothing was wrong. Tom stood by the door and couldn't speak, couldn't stay in the room for more than five minutes at once, but Mark wanted to be close. He was 19 years old then, taller than her, but still needed his mother. Her hair was black and long, and although she was 42 and had been ill for several years, Eleanor hardly had any grey hairs. Mark brushed it and told her she looked beautiful. She smiled and held his hand. Two hours later, she passed away. Mark was the only one with her in the room. He felt her leave him. Her hands were still warm, but something else changed. His mother wasn't inside her body anymore. So you've got this notion of what the actual life is, um, and that's brought to life, well, brought to life, pardon me, um, during the course of that process of death in many ways and people questioning it. Yeah, I think because Mark was coming back and he already lost a parent and was about to lose another and he hadn't seen his son since he was a baby, I, I needed to kind of make him have, have lost everything and need to have find his family again. But he's also then uh, got that challenge of uh, reconciling a number of issues because his dying father, John, wants to meet Ethan. And so how does he then repair his relationship with Claire to, an order, and to enable that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it's, um, it's quite difficult, I think, for Mark to go to Claire and ask to, see, to have his father see Ethan. So. At, yeah, and at the same time, you've got Tom, Mark's brother, who takes a totally different approach to John's parting as well. Yeah, everybody reacts differently to, to loss and grief and it was interesting to see how my fictional characters would be quite different the reactions. At the same time, you've got then Ethan trying to negotiate this whole new dimension to his life. He's got the knowledge, um, a sort of superior skill in terms of intellect, but how does he then um, cope with the jeering and the, the bullying at school? How does he cope with his mother's history, his father's history? So he's having to build on that as well to develop those skills there too. Yeah, I guess the thing when you're 12 years old is you don't really have any perspective, but you think you know everything. And that that's really Ethan's thing is he because he's so smart, he thinks he understands things and maybe he doesn't. And maybe he doesn't. 
It's an interesting read. Do we? Do any of us understand? In fact, um, because of that combination of um, the physics and the emotional, the intellectual and the emotional, and how they're combining, and the thread really is um, how Ethan actually acquired that skill and um, where those that sort of ability comes from. So, um, Antonia, thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much. So my book, my book has been Relativity by Antonia Hayes. So you did physics and I did politics today. Well, is that right? The, oh, you, politics and prostitution for Politics me. and prostitution. <laughs> so yeah, there are all of those sorts of things in the background, yeah, of uh, any great And, well, novel. thank you to our authors, yeah. uh, Ika from Indonesia. You're welcome. And Antonia from Sydney, but San Francisco as well. <laughs> and they're here for the Melbourne Writers oh, Festival. yes. So, look, I went last weekend I just sort of went along to Fed Square I found four hours and it was absolutely fascinating so I advise any people out there just go especially for the 10 o'clock read on, on both mornings free fantastic okay that's it from um, David and Jan and published or not and, and published or not